Good evening. I am your temporary host for Three Moves Ahead, Julian Murdoch. Uh, Rob Zachney is, I don't know where Rob Zachney is, taking taking some time off, mostly because he hasn't played most of the games we're going to talk about. I'm joined with, uh, producer, joined with, joined by our producer, Michael Hermes. Michael. Good evening. Happy to be here. And uh, erstwhile uh, freelance writer and formerly with Kill Screen, Ryan Quo. Hello. And uh, noted game designer, Soren Johnson. Hey everybody! So it's quite a panel we have today. Uh, the the we're, the jumping off point is going to be a little gem of a game that the four of us all happen to love, which is uh, Neuroshima, if you pronounce it that way, or Neuroshima Hex, uh, which is both a board game and an iOS and probably Android too uh, game Im- implementation of it. Which uh, I think we'll, we're just going to start talking about what it is about this game we love, what it teaches us about the board game implementation process for these tablets that we all love so much, uh, how what it tells us about asynchronous play, um, some of the game design decisions, and we'll probably use that as a jumping off point to talk about some other games that we love uh, that have made this jump uh, into this dual zone of being both cardboard and pixelated. Uh, Michael, I'm going to kick it off with you. Maybe you could start just sort of by explaining this game a little bit uh, for folks who haven't, uh, haven't played Neuroshima Hex before, and how do you pronounce it? In my mind, Neuroshima. So we'll just go with that. Or NS-Hex for, for the sake of the show. Uh, but it is a tactical board game, based uh, hex-based tactical war game, based in a thankfully zombie-free post-apocalyptic uh, setting. It was originally um, an RPG setting. Uh, the game comes from Poland, and it involves placing tiles, um, each player has an army with a um, headquarters. Their individual headquarters has a certain power that it gives to all of their uh, following uh, soldier tiles. And in a two to four player game, it's basically knock down your opponent's health uh, and strategically place your dudes around the board. Um, the, the fun comes in with the unique armies, the unique bonuses, and the absolutely bonkers combat, which... Uh, definitely benefits from the power of uh, some computing because uh, as we were mentioning before the show trying to figure that out in real life would be an absolute pain in the butt Uh, it's just one layer after another of uh, a stacked effects and stacked combat Uh, but once you figure it out and once you get the somewhat hard to decode um, iconography on the boards uh, it's a really satisfying game where even small changes on the board uh, have really big impacts on how the combat comes out. Has, has anybody else played it on the board game side of things? I've played a few games of it that way. Um, our friend Corey Banks has has a copy, um, but it doesn't show up very often on on store shelves. I've never seen a copy. I haven't. Yeah, yeah. I, it may have been something that was like an early Kickstarter or something like that, or maybe a just sort of very limited print run. But it's um, it, it's actually not a particularly great board game <laughs> for all those reasons we were just talking about which is which is sort of interesting with why it's so in, you know i i think so compelling on 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 the ios um soren sort of what do you see in this game what is it what is it about this game that you like right i mean you certainly have a, a, a different angle on this than i do i just like beating stuff up and making interesting decisions well what i like is sort of the cascading sort of attack attacks that you get, you know, where you have everything's based off the initiative system, right? Where, where most units attack on, you know, three or two or one. And what that simply means is there's, you know, different phases of combat and all of the units, you know, at three attack at the same time, but all of the units at two attack and all of the units at one attack. Um, and so, you know, it's um, a lot of games have some sort of sequence of events. And if you can follow the sequence of events, it helps you out. And it seems like Nurshima Hex is very much in that sweet spot where if you look at the board, you are going to be able to figure it out, but it's, um, it's not, it's, it's neither too simple nor too complex. And, you know, you can, you, every time you're placing a unit, you know, you're like, okay, this will lead to, this will, lead to him killing that guy, so that means that guy will be gone, he'll not kill this guy, and then that guy will be safe, so he can do this thing. Um, and that's just, to me, that's always been a very satisfying experience. Brian, how about you? Yeah, um, I think that what I like about it is this kind of rhythm that this cascade 
uh, creates. It's like each turn you're only really making two or three decisions, and then you're kind of. Uh, I guess what I like about it is that usually I feel that in games where I'm very conscious of this attempt to create a meaningful play system, I'm kind of like always kind of at war with this feeling of how to what extent do I feel like I'm being pulled along in creating this meaning, but. In, in Nirishima Hex, I feel that, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, put, I'm placing my two tiles uh, and I'm kind of watching the units create. And then I'm kind of building the, the system, like this kind of war machine that, that just kind of goes when it goes. And I can't really tell how it's going to go, but every time it goes, it's kind of um, enacting a, a kind of sensibility. It's enacting this theme like that, that kind of corresponds to each army, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really like sort of... Uh, being very limited to uh, what I'm expected to do as a player and then seeing like a kind of really exaggerated uh, drama play out um, uh, subsequently, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really important to point out that, uh, you know, you're, pl- you're placing these units down. They, they have, they have directionality, they're hex shaped uh, and you're on a grid that I think is only five or six hexes across um, so it's a very small play space that you're in. Um, and, you know, they, they only attack in certain directions. They can attack at range or they can attack in melee. But the attacks are also a tile in your, your stack, in your deck. And so you don't actually know when combat's going to happen unless you happen to flip over a, an attack tile, which will initiate combat. So you can be having a combat every single turn, in which case that combat's going to happen with the one or two tiles that have been placed since the last combat. Or you could end up with a combat not occurring for three, four, five turns, in which case you end up with, um, I mean, I like the way you sort of put it, that you're sort of building the system that you then sort of unleash. It's like a domino thing, you know, maze that you build uh, or or some sort of Rube Goldberg device uh, of cascading effects. And depending on how long it's been since the last combat, um, you can you can fill the whole board. Uh, and then you get this sort of massive combat in which, you know, 90% of the units on the board will probably die. And then you go into another round of, of sort of building that out. And so there's this, every game is slightly different. Sometimes you have one or two big decisive battles. Sometimes you end up in kind of a skirmish war where you're battling, you know, nearly every turn, uh, destroying one unit here, destroying one unit there, which I find that to me is very unusual. And I can't think of any other games that have that sort of unknown battle mechanic in it. What's what's really nice about the uh, the un- unexpected attacks is it means that when you're making decisions, you're kind of balancing between making a logical decision in that you know I want to put this guy here because I know you know it'll have exactly this effect, but you don't know because you don't know when an attack was going to happen. So sometimes you're making decisions logically, but sometimes you're just making them intuitively. Like you know I feel like this is a good area for me to try to gain control of because you know, attack that might happen sometime in the future, it would be advantageous to have my guys here. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, I guess you could say that's sort of a, you know, some sort of balance between strategy and tactics, right? You know, that you're, sometimes you're making very concrete decisions for very specific reasons. And sometimes you have to make decisions just based off of uh, more of a feel of, you know, how you want the board to look. Well, and right. I think that's part of the fun in this, the strategy can come into this kind of metagame because once you have enough uh, games played, you know all the tiles and all the armies, and you know you're playing, you know, the blue guys and the yellow guys, and you're waiting for one certain event to come up or one uh, tile that you really hate, and you kind of get a feel for what's going to come up, and then you can kind of plan around that. And I, I think that's, I think it's, I think it's a lot of fun because all of the armies are their own nice, discreet, neat packages. Uh, the game is a finite length based on the number of tiles you have left to draw. You know, the strategy kind of comes in at looking at the other armies and what, knowing what resources they are going to have, what they've already used, and what you have coming up. So the game plays two, three, or four players um, out of the you know out of the box, as it were. I really enjoyed just playing this as a head to head head game. To me, that's the the, the real sweet spot here. Uh, really, but you're talking about playing against two. I'm guessing that's sort of your default as a three player game, or uh, what, how do you guys approach this? My default ended up being four player all the time. I rotate. Uh, I totally rotate between two, three, and four, depending on. I mean, I play like this game. I play 
I play five games in the morning, like five games in the bathroom, <laughs> five games when I'm in bed uh, before I go to sleep. And it's just kind of, it's just become like sort of part of my circadian rhythms. So that, I mean, <laughs> it really depends on, yeah, two, three or four. It, it's just sort of where I'm personally at any given day. Um, it always feels different. I mean, especially with the app, it's like, it, it, it's like clockwork because, uh, I've also, uh, I, I jailbroke my iPhone and so I, I've accelerated all my animations. So the game plays really fast. Like all the animations are like, they're like hyper caffeinated. So it's like a single <laughs> three player game takes about eight minutes for me. And it's like, I, I can, I can just sort of tell. And it's so, so I kind of, I mean, it's kind of like I'm playing it based on how, I don't know how much I want to be in it uh, at any given moment. And uh, I've I've heard people saying that four player is uh, is a little crowded for for the board. The standard yeah, I board. definitely I definitely feel that way. I mean, I feel like in a four player game, half the time you're not really you're you're sort of just watching a strategic situation unfold that sometimes you don't have much influence on. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, yeah, it's interesting too. This is a slightly different topic, but it's it's interesting to hear. Uh, Ryan talk about the uh, animation question because that gets down to a very pure question of like how much time it takes you to make your you know to, to play the game and make your moves and I think that's that's a really key point for these asynchronous uh, mobile games. Uh, I've seen a lot of games that uh, you know really shoot themselves in the foot by just giving you, you know, too many steps, too many too many clicks so to speak uh, to get into the game. Um, and uh, and actually, I really wish. Hex was better at that. Uh, usually, it seems like from from just you know pressing on the icon, it's probably about four presses before I actually get into the game itself. Um, and I compare that to like Carcassonne, where if I'm playing a game, you know, I just click on the app and I'm immediately right in the game. Um, and you know, I think and there you know there's other games that do that you know, even even much worse. Um, and you know, I, I found that, and I'm so I'm not surprised that you know you're. Uh, trying to, you know, if you're playing a lot of these games, you're trying to find a way to speed yourself through it as soon as, as quick as possible. You know, I think that's that's you know a really you know important important issue for for async games. I I think the other issue is just whether or not the game, you know, talking about other games that have been brought into this genre um, of sort of asynchronous iPad based uh, you know board game conversions. If that's a genre, boy, that's a narrow one. Um, some games just don't work multiplayer like you know asynchronously because there's simply too many player interaction steps um you know i was talking about uh lahav has a great implementation agricola has now a great implementation um you know these are classic fantastic board games from ua rosenberg they're terrible asynchronous because Every, you know, every moment of the game requires some player to do something and all of the steps are very small. And in the real world, a lot of those things happen effectively at the same time. People are playing the game. They all know what they're doing. Everybody sort of does their thing and things move very quickly. But when you're waiting for somebody to take a very small action, like confirm that you actually wanted to move that piece somewhere or confirm that you want to feed your people, it just grinds everything to a complete halt. So the animation thing can certainly get in the way of playing a single player game. And boy, I wish there were more companies that would just sort of let you disable those things or super fast forward them. Um, you know, they, they're, they can be very convenient when you're learning a game and you want to see what's happening slowly, but they get in the way very quickly. But man, the, to me, the real problem is sometimes the systems themselves just don't lend themselves to this kind of gameplay. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, a, a classic example would be Ticket to Ride, right? Like, I mean, that game, uh, you know, it's a great board game, you know, it goes fast, fast to person, but every turn you're basically just drawing two cards, right? I mean, that's, that is not compelling at all. You know? <laughs> like, that's not a good reason to, to open up an app and make a decision. You know, like a good, you know, a uh, Counter example would be, you know, well, Scrabble or also, you know, Words with Friends, essentially, which is, you know, every time you're making a move, you're, it's a meaty decision. You know, you could take five to ten minutes to, like, you know, try to come up with, you know, the perfect play. It's and, actually the antithesis of that, which is that in person, if you take five or ten minutes to play every yes. letter, nobody's ever going to want to play Scrabble with you again. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And, and that's why, like, I think we're in this transitionary period where, Yes, of course, you know, every successful board game is going to get ported to, you know, the, the iPad and the iPhone. And, you know, that's great. And, you know, 
it allows someone to try out all sorts of games for very you know relatively little money. Um, it's just it's just a good thing overall. But I don't think we've got to the point where we're starting to think, you know, designers start to think critically about that they should be designing their games specifically to match you know the asynchronous format. You know that there are certain types of, of uh, design decisions that maybe they, that you know work well in the in the face to face world. But you know, really, are costing them a lot if they're if they're thinking hard about you know, sort of an asynchronous mobile game. Yeah, the first the first designer I ever talked to who was designing a board game, who um, we were talking about this ahead of time, like before the game was actually out, was Colby Dowk, who did Summoner Wars, and he always had in his head that he wanted to have either an online or a mobile version of this, and so he had sort of this design ethos coming in that you can't have, a, I can't put interrupts in this game, right? There can't be right. anything that you do on the other player's turn, because as soon as you put that into a game, you've effectively shot it from ever being useful asynchronously. Yeah, for sure. There's just stuff that just has to be off the table. Um and I think a really good example of that right now is uh, a brief history of the world, you know, which just came out recently. Um, and I really, I really adore that board game. But you know, it's, it's the type of thing that you, you know, you just don't get to take out as often as you'd like to because it's uh, it's a pretty heavy game. You know, you're talking a good four hour game probably if you're playing with uh, four people. Um, and uh, and actually, it seems like just the ideal game for asynchronous play because the whole game is essentially. Uh, well, seven turns in the original version, six turns in the new version, right? It's, it's you basically play out the history of six different countries, uh, and it you know rotates from player to player. Um, so basically, the whole game is like six turns long. Now that that should be fantastic for asynchronous because it means literally the the game just should have to go um, you know around the circle six times, right? But uh, the problem is, and they actually made it worse when they revised the game. There is also a step where you choose a country or, you know, a civilization, I guess. And then there's also a step where you choose sort of basically a special event card. Um, so basically every, when you move, there's one of the, t- uh, one third of your turns are going to be meaty. You know, you're actually doing something at two thirds of your turns. You're just going to be drawing a card. Right. And that, that's, that's probably the right format uh, or that's probably the right mechanic uh, if you're playing face to face in person, um, because you know you're you're essentially all looking at your, you, you know, uh, well I guess you you pass the cards around. You, you well, anyway, draft it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just it just doesn't take that that long in person, but you're significantly you know you're essentially lengthening lengthening the game by three times for a mechanic that you probably could have changed the game so that. You know, when it's your turn, that's when you, you know, you choose your empire and you play it right away, right? Like that would just be some simple tweak you could make to the game, which would vastly speed it up. And the, you know, the, the iPad version would no longer be purely faithful to the tabletop version, but that's what needs to happen, right? You need to change the games to match the format. And what baffles me is if they could at least just you know there's only one card left there's there's one civilization left <laughs> auto pick the last person yeah <laughs> they still make that one person log in say yes i have no choice in this but i need to click and then get on with you know then pass it on to the next person which just astounds me as a decision yeah, yeah that's brutal it makes me really wonder if developers are really taking asynchronous play seriously or not like i, I wonder if there's some of them that think well you know we're going to we're basically filling a checkbox like it, it works you know, like it definitely works, but they, you know, they're not really thinking that, you know, this is something that that's all that valuable. And that really surprises me because I think of, I definitely think of some apps that I think, you know, think of Ascension, right? Like that really took off because it was such a great, uh, iOS app. Um, like I don't think that game would be nearly as popular without, without the great, uh, Oh, and, uh, mobile, and I think they've made vastly more money in iOS than they ever did on paper. Sure. For sure. Um, and like, you know, like part of me wants to basically redo history of the world in, in a way that would fit mobile because <laughs> I, I, feel, I think it's like it's such a missed opportunity. It's just the perfect game for an asynchronous format, you know, but they got to redo the rules. Yeah, I haven't played that, but uh, I feel that this also happens with uh, Eclipse, which which oh, yeah. uh, Big Guys yeah. Creations also ported uh, to the iPad. And it's like, you know, you have 
you know, usually you're having uh, each player doing a lot of different decisions on their turn, but then it's like you have to wait. You have to take a turn just to pass on to the next player when you're done with that round. And so it's like you end up waiting half a day for someone to just pass uh, to pass it on. And then it's even worse when you get into battles because then you each have to like individually trade your shots each time um, before it's resolved. And so it, I guess it, at those points it starts to feel like it's almost like you know everybody's real life starts to interrupt the the, the shape of yeah. the game the game that you're playing, and uh, it's really strange. I mean, I never play uh, I never play uh, Nirishima Hex Async if I can help it, but um, it's really bad uh, in that game uh, when uh, you have a push tile and you're trying to push you know the other uh, another person's unit. Um, backwards, and even if there's no choice, they, they have to log in and confirm that that's right. where they oh want to go. Oh my gosh, yeah. I never even it's thought like, of that. Well, yeah, well, I mean, th- these are games that are just not designed for it. I mean, in Eclipse, the pass mechanic in person is fantastic because you get this conditional pass, which means that even though it's not your turn anymore, you there's something you could do when it comes back around to you to pass again because you've got this you've got these other options that you could take um that are that are inferior but i've certainly taken them in face-to-face games where you like all of a sudden the strategic situation's changed i get to unpass right it's kind of clever actually for for that mechanic because usually you don't ever get to unpass um but it does make it impossible to play and it's a little bit like imagine trying to play a, a faithful version of risk that was implemented asynchronously where you were rolling your own individual dice, where you're going to go into some <laughs> combat and like you roll your three dice. I roll my two dice. You roll. Th- I mean, it would take a year and a half to play a game of risk that way because people eventually have to eat. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the player expectations are because for a lot of these games, I feel like they basically just don't work asynchronously because of these holdovers, right? It's like, yes, theoretically you can play that way, but like, it's just, it's not designed for it. So like, I, I wonder to me, it feels like, you know, with, with, there's a lot of video games that sort of jump around from platform to platform and they are, you know, they are changed in sort of these, these small ways to fit the different platforms, whether they're jumping from console to PC to mobile or whatever. And I think the same should be true of board games, you know, that they should take the liberty to redesign some of these rules uh, to fit the platform better, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe have the fallback that is totally faithful for, um, people who care about that stuff, but you know, at least to make an effort to make it make the rules actually work for async. You know, I, th- I think it's also worth pointing out that you know we we talk about asynchronous. I think in the sort of disparate internet friends zone which is you know usually how that is it's like i'm playing with you know somebody in la and somebody in boston and somebody in canada and somebody in australia and that's what's really cool about it is that you're playing with all these people you don't get to play with um but when when agricola came out i mean i have a lot of house cons at my house um a couple times a year and when agricola came out we all sat around on the couch playing asynchronous quote-unquote agricola on the ipad because agricola slows down largely because of the freaking maintenance in that game of update you know making sure you've got all the right sheep in the right places i mean you spend more time between turns than you do during turns and that's the great thing about all of these computer animated board games is all that goes away um and so we were playing you know three four player games of agricola in 20 minutes sitting on the couch which was an amazing experience, but we were doing it, quote unquote, using the asynchronous play. Sure. We just happened to be on the same network. So we were just sitting there yelling at each other to take their take, take your turn. So it does work, but in that limited environment. Yeah, no, that seems that seems valuable for sure. Uh, are there a lot of the uh, iPad adaptations? Because it seems like the iPad format of that board is screaming for hot seat play, especially in a game like Hex, where uh, the bookkeeping is the big Roadblock. So if you had, if you could play, you know, sitting across the table from somebody on the iPad uh, without having to play with the the little bits and and the math, that would be almost ideal. I don't know if I have. I've been playing it on the iPhone. I don't know if the iPad has Hot Seat. Uh, I'm pretty sure it does. I haven't used. I haven't played Naroshima Hex that way, but most of the board games that I can think of do have that Hot Seat. I mean, I know I played um, the Small World implementation, which is only two player. 
uh, another fantastic game. Um, that's on, the, the only multiplayer mode there, I think, still is Hot Seat, where you literally are just flipping it back and forth, and it realigns all the pieces on the board for the perspective of the person on the other side of a table, and it's it's the perfect I'm sitting at a restaurant with a friend game because uh, you just tilt the pad back and forth, uh, and there's no real hidden information or anything like that, which can be the problem with with Hot Seat is you know you need to have all those gating screens to make sure that when you know when you get the iPad, it's only showing you what you're supposed to see, which can be problematic but um yeah hot seat works great on these things in in thinking about like the future i mean soren you were sort of talking about how uh you know maybe designers aren't thinking about these things when they're headed into the design process um has your experience with these kinds of things changed how you're thinking about stuff that you want to work on i mean are you are you now keeping in mind a set of conditions and play styles that didn't exist five years ago uh, I mean, if I was if I was working on one of these games, I mean, for sure. I mean, I think that um, I think that there's a big opportunity to make uh, essentially something that feels like feels like a card to board game, but never actually has a physical version. It's just aimed intended directly for the iPhone iPad market, um, because then you can uh, you know you, you aren't going to fall into any of the not necessarily bad habits, but you're not going to fall into any of the design uh, pitfalls that you might from, you know, assuming that people are going to be face-to-face. Um, because I think that, you know, there, there, there's a lot of people who, you know, there's a lot of board gamers out there, and, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, playing playing games, playing serious board games asynchronously, uh, you know, kind of fits fits a hole in their gaming life that, you know, just allows them to play play board games that they might not be able to otherwise games that had that feel that they might not be able to otherwise i mean there there definitely have been examples of that i mean battle of the bulge right i mean that that was a case of a very board game like game that uh, you know because there was no physical version managed to do a bunch of stuff you couldn't have done otherwise you know soul forge is a great sort of ccg wannabe um, that is, you know, only available on sort of online versions. Mojang Scrolls is another sort of CCG type right. game um, that's that's eschewing physical versions. But honestly, there there's something about that connection between the physical version and the the online or the iPad version that I find really compelling. I mean, like I love the fact that I can actually get in even against a relatively mediocre AI, a whole pile of games of Eclipse, right? That's a big, complicated, meaty game that I'm going to get on the table a couple times a year if I'm lucky, right? Not because I don't have friends to come over, but nobody wants to play that game every week, right? (laughs) They want to play other stuff. They want to move on, right? So even if I had the most dedicated, hardcore group of friends to come over and play big, meaty strategy games every single week, I'd only get that game on the table a few times a year, um, by being able to play it on the iPad, I feel like when it does come out on the table, I have such a much, a, a much deeper familiarity with what's going on. It makes the, the physical experience that much better. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think it goes both directions in that there's advantages to making sure you're developing the digital version um, right from the very beginning so you don't sort of shoot yourself in the foot with any design decisions. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think it is good to be rooted in some sort of a physical, like I said, Battle of Bulge is an interesting example because apparently they made, they did actually make that game as a real board game first uh, before they started coding it. Yeah, they just didn't um, sell it. They just right, they, exactly. But that's how they prototyped it, yeah. Right, and, uh, you know, they, they didn't have to do that, but I think it's very valuable that they did because... When you're forced to have a physical version, it prevents you essentially from over-designing the game, um, from putting in elements that are just essentially going to be a bunch of calculations running under the hood that people, you know, may or may not understand. You know, the game games that have to work in a physical version tend to be more transparent, um, and I think that's sort of uh, implied expectation for people who want to get sort of their board game fix. You know, that they can see the machine working. You know, they can see mm-hmm. how every part is flowing through the system. And if you have to make it as a physical game, it sort of, it sort of keeps you honest, right? Um, you know, you can definitely see, you know, how war games went crazy, you know, once they became sort of purely digital, right? Um, and, uh, of course, war games got pretty crazy even in their, I was about you to know. say, I, I thought you were <laughs> going to talk about ASL, but that's okay. <laughs> 
even in the cardboard version. But but still, I, I think there there's a lot of value in sort of like you know keeping people, you know, keeping the game grounded in, in something that a person could theoretically you know do. It's funny because I, I feel like a lot of these board game adaptations make me appreciate uh, their video game aspects more too, um, in the sense that like my understanding of Nirishima Hex and like its 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 theme has everything to do with the way that it animates, the way the the units kind of knock each other off the board, and the sounds that they make when they shoot their guns. And I'm thinking about like uh, this recent translation of Talisman. Um, the Talisman Prologue game that came out, which is, um, on the one hand, it's a, it's kind of like this uh, faithful recreation of the board game experience where all you see is like a, a, a kind of like a, a figurine moving across the board, but something about the way that they've animated it kind of makes it feel like it's that thing come to life. And so that's where I feel the, the role of sort of like this audiovisual kind of um, sound animation thing on a screen, um, creating some meaning outside of that system. Um, and, you know, I feel like coming from uh, a lot of video game criticism, it's, it's very, it's very uh, popular to talk about, you know, what is this meaningful system? What is that meaningful system? How is this uh, meaning emerging from, from the rule set? But then I feel like a lot of people overlook the role that... Um, I know phenomenologically, like when you see pixels moving on a screen, that also that's something completely constitutionally separate from uh, the kind of mechanics of the game. And so I think it's really interesting, I guess, for me, thinking about where these board games, uh, they, a lot of them seem kind of in between. Like Nourishima Hex feels like a video game as well as a board game, and parts of Eclipse do too now. You know, it, it feels like I could mistake it for uh, a really minimal 4X game. You know right. what I mean? Right. Um, but the the challenge there i mean you know one of the one of the negative things people say about big euro games on the board game side is you know that they're all just math with graphics right that's yeah, the yeah. that's the classic criticism of reiner knizia games right it's like they slap the theme on on the way out the printing press <laughs> you know and it's just a system uh and you could you can have you know dwarves mining or uh you know world war ii guys in trenches and it doesn't make any difference and and what you're saying is that the video game system the video game media conveys theme a lot better in many cases than board games board games are generally pretty crappy at conveying theme so much so that when a board game really conveys theme well people like get all excited about it. Like, you know, that, that, that's an amazing thing. Um, and even a game like Agricola, which has the worst theme ever, right. Being the world's most average dirt farmer. It's like, nobody wants to read that book. Um, the, the, the iOS version is actually charming and like evokes the theme of like a, you know, a, a pastoral wonderland in a way, you know, and it's got cute animations and great little sound effects in the corners and it's just it is vastly more thematic than the game itself for which you know, most people consider the theme of Agricola to be its biggest weakness and it's actually phenomenal in the version that they made for the iOS yeah and i i really enjoy playing the iOS Agricola much more than i play enjoy playing the iOS Lahav because and because of that and i think I don't know. I think that people describe these elements as kind of window dressing or just presentation. But, um, you know, I was really interested when I read um, on Pocket Tactics that um, I think Codito developed uh, Brief History of the World, right? And uh, they were talking about how this was going to be, you know, their big step up in terms of the UI, the animations, the whole like kind of graphical um, presentation of the game because, you know, iOS gaming has evolved to the point where people expect that. And I'm wondering if that you know, A, has to do with uh, just a superficial desire for more bells and whistles, or if it has to do with, I don't know, the sense that board gaming on iOS or, or whatever you want to call it, like, feels like it's more meaningful or most meaningful on this platform once the the kind of audiovisual elements reach some level of parity with the, the mechanical ones. You know what I mean? Um, it's like, uh, it's like, it makes, it just, it doesn't feel like I can play a really faithful version of like a Reiner Kinesia game, you know, on iOS, but it's, it's just like, you know, like, um, squares moving across the screen and it feels right. really hot and, and it doesn't feel like it really, 
it doesn't feel like a real game. It's like I had to, there's a willful suspension of disbelief that I have to put in in order to kind of believe that this system that I'm uh, participating in is is I don't know is like even fun. But um, <laughs> but I don't know. It's like I think it has to do with this backlit screen. You know, not to get like super <laughs> metaphysical, but uh, it's like uh, Agricola feels really uh, it feels tactile it feels a lot more tactile than uh you know just pretending that i'm moving virtual cards around because i'm picking up these um boars and they're wiggling around and putting them in my fireplace and i'm cooking you know like and uh, it's just very intuitive that way you know i mean one question i was wondering you know i mean i was talking about how i had the sense that i could master eclipse a little more because i could play it on my ios um, I've learned a lot of board games that I used to like be like, oh yeah, I might've played that once, but honestly I'd read the rules and never actually gotten it on the table with actual people before. Um, and then I get an opportunity to play it in some sort of iOS or, or online version of it, you know, Brett's Wealth or something like that. And that becomes sort of my learning crucible so that when it actually does hit the table with real friends, you skip all of that painful process of sitting down with four people who've never played a game before, which is like the worst part of being a gamer ever. Um, I, ha, have you guys had that experience too of like learning games from the iOS version in order to play it face to face? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like it's it's definitely the best way to jump into a game at this point. And you know, I, I think it'd be great if if you know companies really make an effort for the the digital version to come out at the same time as the the regular release. Um, I guess it's kind of hard to predict what games are successful or not, but um, but still, if possible. And, and I mean, I think there's also, you know, you talked about the audio-visual aspect. I think another thing that really needs to talk about is just the, the UI, because there's a huge potential for helping people understand the game if you design the UI well. And there's plenty of board game conversions that haven't done a good job on this. But just, just the basics of being able to, you know, gray out what your options are. You know that you know, you know right off the bat, saying, "Okay, you know these are the six things you can do, but right, right now these are three things that you can't." And you can't afford most, these cards. Don't buy them. Right. Yeah. And most importantly, and where a lot of games don't do this right, it needs to. That's what that is: is a learning opportunity. Someone sees an option grayed out. There needs to be a way for the player to, to press on that and find out why. You know, there's so many times these these board games put you in the situation. You're like, well, I don't know why I can't do this. You know, and, and the especially funny one is if you just discovered something about a game you'd already played that you didn't realize. You know, there's some sort of rule you actually missed from when you played the game in person. You know, and you're like, I should be able to do this. Why can't I do this? The game is broken. And then eventually you go back, you read the rules, and you're like, oh, I see. There was this <laughs> rule I never read, and that's why I can't do that. Um, and uh, um, and you know, so so the game has to use that as a, as a great opportunity to to let you know why that thing is not there. Yeah, and you know, we've talked about two games that I think are are fantastic examples of doing it right and wrong. I think tutorials come into play here a lot too, um, in terms of really making how you learn the game organic. Um, I actually thought for for the flaws it has, the the tutorial and the sort of the information flow in a brief history of the world. Um, on the iOS is phenomenal. I mean, if you've never played that game before, I can, I mean, I literally did hand that to one of my kids and say, see if you like this. And they were playing the game. I mean, they, they learned the game. They understood it. They understood why they could go into this territory and not into the other contrast that with eclipse. And I feel very sorry for anybody who's tried to learn the game of eclipse by playing that on iOS, because it never tells you that you're doing stuff that's ridiculously dumb. I mean, one of the core mechanics in Eclipse is you can kind of keep doing as many actions as you want while everybody else is passing. You're just going to have to pay for it at the end of the turn. And if you've never played that game before, you would just be sitting here like plowing through and be like, oh, I owe $48 to the bank and I have nothing. And you'd just be dead. That would be game over effectively for you. Yeah, I think ideally all the apps, um, <clears throat> the apps rec- sort of recreate the the uh, the nice friend that's sitting next to you and kind of nudges you and tells you not to make that move <laughs> when you're sitting around the table. Yeah, um, um, that that's the other great thing about brief history of the world is its question mark button will yeah. like suggest a move, which uh, you know, I mean, maybe that that's nice. cheating, maybe it's not. I don't know. I think it's smart. 
Yeah, there's a few games. Does La Havre or Puerto Rico do that? I'm trying to remember, but like, I, I love that feature. I mean, that's just that's just a great way to like jump into the game and feel like you don't need to read. I, I know for sure La Havre did that because that's how I learned yeah. the rules. Like, I'm not gonna I'm not going to read the rules. I'm just gonna keep pressing the you know the question button until like this thing starts to make sense to me. <laughs> One thing that's kind of unfortunate for um, Hiroshima Hex is it, it essentially has a tutorial. But it's a separate paid app. There's a, another. Are you serious? Yeah, there's another app oh. in the app store called Hiroshima Hex Puzzle, and uh, I found it when I was just looking for more Hiroshima Hex content to, to, to do something. And it's a series of puzzles uh, that starts out with essentially tutorial levels, like say, you know, you're going to figure out how pushback works. So make sure that by the end of this, this guy's over here, and it eventually works up into some pretty satisfying puzzle elements because the format of ns hex really lends itself to um you know make this complex chain of events happen well yeah it's it's like chess in that regard right figuring out the ideal situation is is yeah super satisfying so if if you really really like hex uh for three (laughs) dollars you can go pick up some more of it uh it's just too bad that some of that wasn't involved in the game which is it, it has some concepts that you can easily grasp but there's enough variety in the tiles that there's some more obscure mechanics that you kind of have to go into the hard-to-find in-game help for each tile and and figure out, well, what what is this little thing that doesn't appear on any other tile in the game mean, and, and how is that going to affect what I'm doing? Yeah, I wish games did more of that sort of content expansion when they go online. Um, I didn't know about the Naroshima Hex content um but the settlers i can't i don't know who did did it but there's a settlers and a um seafarers and knights and cities set of ios games which are phenomenal they're great um and they're really good single player and the ai is actually reasonably competent but the reason that that's an entertaining game isn't so much that i can fire up a game of knights and cities of Catan. um it's that they have all of these sort of sequential scenarios that have tweaks to the setup like you can only do this or you know it's going to be super short on this material or uh you get extra points if you have you know more fields than the next guy and it's sort of all these little rules tweaks level by level um which make the single player game feel much more rewarding than this sort of being a simulator of your game table um and very few games seem to take that opportunity which i just find a little bit disheartening and maybe it takes a franchise with the weight of settlers to justify it i don't know yeah, that's a really good idea. I mean, that's learning from the world of video games, I think, because, you know, video game designers know that those type of tweaks are really cheap. You know, there's there's a ton of tweaks that we build, we put into the setup screen of a Civ game, right? You know, you want to do your always war mode or your one seat challenge or whatever. Um, and it's it's so easy to add that stuff and it really expands the game. Um, and, uh, you, know, if, you know, it should be almost even easier for board games because board games are so rule-based that you know one simple change could change the whole game yeah i mean just i mean imagine a game of eclipse where you have a preset map i mean that wouldn't take a whole lot of energy to figure that out it would be a radically different experience than what you do when you sit down but that's like having a preset map for settlers of Catan, where it's like oh all the bricks on one side and nobody's allowed to start there in the beginning right that would be like a house rule version of that game and i've played plenty of house rule versions of board games where people do stuff like that it's like okay we're going to play risk and nobody's allowed to take australia i mean those kinds of things are incredibly common or beyond that like opening the game up to you know like user-made maps stuff like that right i mean then, then you know the game extends beyond what the designers could even uh imagine well and then then imagine taking in some of like rob davio's legacy game style stuff the risk legacy unlock version which was already bringing the sort of video game content unlock model into the board game world you know it seems like there's just an incredible opportunity here most of which seems to be lying fallow maybe it's because there's only like you know ten thousand of us geeks out there to buy the stuff i don't know well the the risk legacy legacy stuff seems especially ripe for what you can do in the digital world right because uh you know legacy has you know a number of logistical challenges to make it work you know playing with the same group of people x number of times you know uh you know, that's just something that might be a lot easier to pull off in the, in the digital realm, um, as well as just kind of a question of, you know, you can, you only want to buy so many copies of Risk Legacy, right? Whereas, right. you know, you could, <laughs> you could kind of do it infinitely uh, in the digital world. So, uh, yeah, I hope I hope that gets explored. 
think it will. I think there's there's definitely interest in it. I uh, I have some friends who enjoy Risk, but probably not much beyond that in terms of gaming. Um, and we we picked up Risk Legacy, and I said, hey, let's let's check this out. You know, we heard a lot about it, and uh, we we powered through it almost. We powered through it in one day. Wow. And, uh, yeah, wow. that's we, uh, a long day. It was an ex- it was ba- it was an all day affair, but they loved it so much that we we started going. Uh, we we played the whole way through it, and at the end, they were like, "That was awesome." What else does this same thing? And I said, "There isn't anything right now." <laughs> wait, wait, two years. Rob's working on it. Yeah, because it just yeah. happened, and we're we're like on the the, the brink of this, and uh, stuff like that has has a huge potential. I hope there's more of it. Well, and, and in the iOS world, I mean, you can imagine how easy it would be for the four of us to be like, we're going to launch a Risk Legacy game. And yeah, it might take us a year to play through 16 games, but that's a little bit like being in a fantasy football league, right? I mean, that takes 16 right. weeks. Yeah. Right? I mean, and the you're... idea of that sort of long form league style game that happens over a series of smaller increments with the same group of people, that's not alien at all. And it's super easy with the internet. Sure. It's fun when that's the point. Conversely, when you were talking before about you have a game of Lahav that's three (laughs) months long, (laughs) that just sounds awful. Yeah. We have a five player game, a gamers with jobs going on of Lahav. Uh, we're all taking our turns, but because of the way that game implements asynchronous play, it's like literally, it's like, yes, I'd like to feed my people. That's a turn. And you can do that 10 more times and you can end turn seven or whatever it is. Uh, and we're all taking our turns and we're, 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 I mean, we might hit a year on that game before it's done. It's insane. I, th- I think it's worth mentioning another opportunity just because of. Uh, some unfortunate problems and the comedy of errors we've had trying to get some games going uh, in some of these these platforms. I mean, Julian and I, I don't we we never got an NS Hex game going because when we established it, it would disappear. Uh, Soren, we had uh, a game of NS Hex Timeout. Uh, right. There was a brief history of World game that we had going that just kind of poofed with, with away. Like Bruce and Tom and a couple other right. people, and that just disappeared too. Yeah, I I'm kind of disappointed with the, the 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 multiplayer aspects and just the technical abilities to kind of f- do fundamental things like keep the game going or allow people to easily set up games. Yeah, and this is why I wonder if you know developers are really taking this stuff seriously. I mean, I, I imagine most of these shops are really pretty small, you know, and so you know they, they just made it, maybe they just don't have the the engineering horsepower to pull some of this stuff off because it is it is really a shelf moment you know a lot of these a lot of these things here where a game just disappears i mean why would you you know these games are, are long commitments you know why would you go through it again if it might just vanish um and timeouts in particular really bug me i mean how long was our i mean it seems like i mean i've been basically on vacation on and off in, in august so i think i basically disappeared for a week i mean that doesn't seem that was- long to me I think it was a, a week or less than a week. It, was, it certainly wasn't it's, more than a week before our first. It seems game like a less than a week because I, yeah. I was playing on my phone and I, you know, probably just forgot about it for a few days. But um, we had a really kind of comical one where I was playing uh, chess with friends with my dad, and we we were camping in Oregon together for a week, and we realized because we'd been camping, he plays on his iPad. And because we were camping, he was he wasn't going to be able to play a turn, and we were like watching the timeout, looking like, oh crap, this game is <laughs> going to time out like two days before we leave. And we're like, well, okay, I have my iPad, but he, he doesn't have a, a you know he, he doesn't have a, a wireless iPad, right? He needs a, a Wi-Fi connection. So we were like, well, we could drive into town, go to Starbucks, <laughs> and you know, you could connect your your iPad and then play your turn. And then the, the whole thing is like, God, this is just so absurd, you know? Like, why does the game time out after ten days? It's just, you know, there there are just times when you're not going to be able to do a, a move for that long. I mean, that yeah, just, and and, uh, and so I think often that's tied to some belief that they need to run a ladder or a competitive system, which I, you know, if you're going to do that, then sure. You need to have a way that people can't just walk from a game that they're not winning. So I, I, yeah. I get where it comes from, but that's not most of the world. I don't think I really don't. Yeah. I mean, the Carcassonne app does this beautifully, right? I mean, that, yeah. I, I've never had a game there disappear or time out when I didn't want it to. Yeah. 
uh, and all the controls are there to make it, you know, two minutes per turn because you're playing on the couch too. Yeah. Right. So you you can get the best of both worlds. So it's possible. It's not like there's a technical right. difficulty. I think I think you're right. I think it's probably largely a manpower issue. Um, but it's frustrating because I really feel like this kind of stuff is the future of board gaming. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really it's really frustrating. Like, I mean, it's amazing that Carcassonne was so early and they got almost everything right. You know, like those those guys have a lot to be proud of, um, for sure. But yeah, timeouts. Oh man, <laughs> that's so frustrating. Um, I think that I remember early on Ascension had a really crazy system where you had basically three total days, I think, yes. of, of time. And that was just a disaster, I remember. Um, and I, I think, like, very quickly they, they changed that to a more, like, functional system where it was just, it was just looking at how long it was since you took your last move uh, as opposed to, like, adding up all of your time. Because there were, there's a number of the games where I got into where I could see that my opponent was very close to hitting that three-day limit. So I'm like, I'm going to make my move at 1 a.m., you know, and then they're going to lose because, you know, they're going to be asleep. Well, and it's like, what, what type of game is this to be in with? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's talking about rewarding bad behavior. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, before we start wrapping things up, uh, are there any games that, that you feel like, like any physical world board games that you feel are just crying out to be made into iOS games? Not just because you want to play them and nobody will play with you, but because you think they're they're actually well suited for the format and for this kind of asynchronous play. I do. I mean, my, my, my answer right off the top of my head would have been history of the world, you know. But now, you know, very timely. But the other one, for sure, is Race for the Galaxy, um, and that that's one that probably needs some rule tweaks. Definitely needs some rule tweaks, but it has huge potential because in practice, when you see a lot of people play those games that uh, play race. They play it, um, uh, what's the right term for it? Uh, they play it simultaneously, basically. They, they essentially, you know, like go through all the phases just, you know, doing, doing their actions. And they kind of come up for air when they kind of make the decisions on, uh, you know, choosing the, the phases for the next time through. And a game of race is usually maybe 10 to 12 turns. And if you're playing it um, simultaneously, you kind of get that nice frozen synapse thing where... Right. Uh, it doesn't matter who goes, who kind of submits their turn first. You're kind of submitting them all at the same time. So if you're playing two-player game, and you 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 submit your turn, you then immediately get to do your next turn right away. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's some other games that kind of have a similar format to race, um, and uh, uh, but I mean that's that would be the big one in my mind. For for me, it would be um, you know Twilight Struggle or or uh, or making a present nineteen sixty four, which are oh, yeah. the same same system, two different games, uh, and not quite the same system, but but similar. Um, both of them, you know, don't have they, there are no interrupt mechanics there. You're you're sort of you're definitely sort of taking your turn. On your turn, a lot of stuff happens, and you tend to change the face of the game. There's a little bit of interrupt stuff that could happen in the in in 1964, which would be easy to patch out. Um, but but those are to me big meaty games that have lots of fiddly parts that are pain in the ass to actually put on the table. Um, that 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 really lend themselves to playing online. There are there are sort of uh, really nerdy online PC versions of those that you can play if you go to the right websites and all that stuff. But they they'd be ideal on this. I mean, part of the problem is that they, you know there may be a uh, a point of no return where games that would benefit so much from this are also the games that have such small sales in the real world that they don't necessarily justify a big development budget, right? Because simpler board games are often the ones that get the bigger physical sales, right? So Settlers of Catan, it's a no-brainer. It also doesn't really need an, an iOS version. It's nice to have one, but it's not like it's getting an enormous speed boost uh, or, or information design boost because you're putting it on a platform like that. I mean, I'm, I was surprised to see, for instance, um, Dominant Species get an iOS version. Um, and, and honestly, I found the iOS version because it was a perfect faithful recreation of the board game version to be almost pointless. Right? It didn't get any faster. It didn't any, get any easier to play. Uh, it didn't bring anything new to the party. Um, it wasn't all that fun to play against the AI, and therefore, why did I bother spending any money on it? Right? There was no instant bonus for playing it online or on iOS, whereas with a lot of games, I think there is. 
Yeah, those are those are nineteen sixty and Twilight are two very good suggestions. And yeah, there is kind of this weird catch twenty two where, um, yeah, they I mean those those are not games that are going to sell a lot, even though they're highly thought of. But I would work awesome in that, in, in that format. And we haven't really also talked about the fact that when you're saying in asynchronous, uh, when you're saying asynchronous multiplayer mobile play, you should pretty much be also saying two player games. I mean, that's really what you know, like where the core where that, that format is the best. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I would really love to do, a, I would really love to see a great history of the world game that works great with four or five people. Uh, in that case, I think it'd work because the whole game is like six or seven turns long. Um, but if, you know, if you're talking about kind of a full stop, I take my turn, you take your turn. Like to me, that that is generally the realm of a two-player game. Like it just gets so crazy when you're involving three, four or five people. Yeah, you know, one person, and you know, one person start, stops you know, their game goes poorly, so they start start to lose interest, and they basically break the game for everyone else. Right. Well, and and if you think about it, just from the tabletop perspective, there aren't that many good big tabletop strategy games that are three, four, five players that are I go, you go, you know, big turn, big turn, big turn right. for precisely that reason. Because if they are half the table is bored by the time their turn comes around. I mean, Dune to me is a classic example. One of my favorite board games of all time, but a completely valid criticism of that is you take your turn and you go get a sandwich. Right. And that was the history of their world issue too, as well, for sure. You know, like, which is why I always thought, wow, this would make an awesome asynchronous game. Right. But like, but like Dune, occasionally the other player has to do something on their yeah. turn. Like they get attacked or something. And right. so you end up in this sort of cascading check the box problem, which I think is, you know, perhaps somewhat intractable, right? Maybe some games just should be left to left to their old board game uh, hooks and go. But I think you're right. I think two players where the sweet spot here is. Yeah. Well, I love the chance to redesign history of the world to solve that issue because I think it's just a lot of small little stuff that you can, you can solve away. So if, so if the rights owners are listening, they should call you. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, before we wrap up, any other thoughts folks have on, on this topic? We, we've talked a fair amount about, about Neuroshima Hex. I'm gathering that at least Ryan and Michael, um, that you guys have bought all the expansion armies and all that stuff. Yes. Do you think the game holds up in DLC? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think so. Yeah, the, the, the expansion armies add some, some really interesting concepts, and the, the base armies... Uh, I don't think um, ability-wise are lacking, but they're definitely the more straightforward ones. Uh, the expansion armies uh, include one of my favorites, which is the the Neo Jungle, the dark green plant-based one, where you just kind of build out with your plant mass uh, to, to spread your powers out. And I, I really like the expansions. Uh, and it's noteworthy that Big Daddy Creations said via their Twitter feed that there are more in the works and that's one of the things they're working on right now is uh, some new armies for Hex. Is that yeah. what you're beating me with in our <laughs> game right now, Michael? <laughs> yeah, how's that See, game going, by the way? We didn't talk uh, about that at all. Oh, it's not going too well. But, uh, um, yeah, so, which brings up one issue I'd say with Nourishroom Hex is they definitely have a UI communication problem. Because a lot of the stuff that happened to me, I don't, like, there's, there's no help for anywhere at all on screen. Um, and there's no you know, log. There's no log that says this yeah, is what happened no. to your guys, and this is why right. all of them are dead. Yeah, right. I mean, my my base got poisoned basically right from the beginning. So basically, it's just been like, you know, just been doomed basically. But you know, basically every I time I felt bad attacked, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want um, to do it, but you only have so many tiles to work with. It makes me feel so much better. It does. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I see my base is red, so I know something's wrong with it. But I'll, I'll be darned to know what it is, right? Um, and when you when you mix, you know, sort of people who have the standard game with people with expansion pack, like you, you definitely need to find a way to explain to the people who got, you know, attacked by something they've never seen before what's going on. Yeah, it's uh, the Magic the Gathering problem, but you can't just read the card and know. Yeah. So then, real quick before we go, uh, Dark Green is my favorite. Do you guys have uh, preferences for Hex Armies, Ryan? I'm a huge fan of Smart, the uh, <clears throat> the intelligent uh, robot jungle are they're like the the yeah. uh the spin-off of moloch that colonized the jungle and they're they're all kind of like insectoid and uh they're very mobile um i'm really waiting for this new one called mephisto that was just released uh, started yes. as a fan army and uh 
and it's it's basically uh, it's it's got one unit that can uh, that can which is also its HQ. It's like a, a big cyber killer worm, and all the other tiles are just sort of glands that that attach to it and make it super powered, which I think is awesome. I don't know. I check Big Daddy's Creations Twitter account every morning. <laughs> waiting for news. Uh, I mean, I'm just wow. like Nero Shimex super fan number one. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been months since they announced those expansions. I bought the um, ahead of this podcast. I had not played them until very recently. Vegas, which which I just found funny yeah. that they named like one of these factions Vegas, which gets this sort of great like bribery power where other people you know your opponent's crap starts becoming your crap really quickly and i just find that humorous i haven't done very well with it but it's definitely my favorite because um you know we've talked about how it has sort of a not particularly great industrial design going on like the iconography is not all that intuitive and and i even having been playing this game for however many years two years at this point i still end up hitting the little i button and looking up what units do off and on because i can't remember what the stupid sign means on them um but the 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 artwork on these guys i actually find highly humorous so uh they they definitely they evoke theme lots of facial hair (laughs) and uh soren uh, I'm still, uh, I haven't played enough games where I say I have a favorite race. Although maybe I will buy the green race. <laughs> Vegas, baby. It's all about <laughs> Vegas. Uh, all right. Uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for this evening. Thanks again to producer Michael Hermes, who we get to actually thank in person, Ryan Quo and Soren Johnson. And Ryan, if I've been pronouncing your name wrong all day, I'm really... No, really... no, you're good. All right, good. With that, uh, I think we'll have Rob Zachney back again next week. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon. Good night. Good night.